welcome to those of you that are here in person and to those of you that are joining us online. It is good to be with you in 2021. Um, And it's a blessing to be able to share God's word with you, whether it's 2000, 2010, 2020, anytime. Um, If I'm honest, uh, 2021 has started off even harder than 2020. um, And yet, it is still a blessing to be able to share God's word with you, to gather with you, um, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ um, together. And I love the reminder that Joe gave us, I think this week on Facebook, of that our hope is not in the calendar. No matter the, the month of the day, whether it's the end or the beginning of the year, our hope is in God, uh, who does not fail us. So we're going to Continue in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, and the sermon uh, title today is A Better Sacrifice. Um, When I first moved to New Jersey, I was a few months old. My parents brought me here against my will, but uh, I was brought here a few months old, and we lived in a house in Clarksboro initially, where they rented a house there, Uh, and then they moved a little bit later into the house that I grew up in. And as I was growing up, every once in a while, uh, my older siblings would tell stories about memories that they had from that first house that they grew up in. And I always kind of felt like an outsider looking in when they would tell those stories, because I was too young. I didn't remember anything about that first house. And I think as we're reading through Hebrews, we face a similar problem, a feeling kind of like we're on the outside looking in. Joe's talked about how Hebrews was written to Jewish people who shared a common history and a context that you and I don't. And um, so it's difficult to understand what the significance can be of some of the things that we're reading about when we read about covenants and priesthoods and sacrifices. Those are things that you and I don't relate to on a daily basis. Um, So what do we do? Uh, It's kind of like if you're watching a movie or if I said the quote, uh, leave the gun, take the cannolis. For those of you that have seen the movie Godfather, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you might even be able to picture the scene and the bigger context of what's going on when that quote was said. But if you haven't seen the movie, you have no idea. And it's kind of like that when we read Hebrews. As we read through Hebrews, the author is going to make a lot of references to this original story in the Old Testament. And if you haven't read that story or if you're not familiar with it, it can be really confusing. But fortunately, there's this tool in your Bible, and if you have specifically a study Bible, um, you might already realize this, but at the end of certain words, there's these letters And in my Bible in the center, if you look at that letter, it'll have another verse behind it. And those are called cross-references. And they're really helpful because a cross-reference can often show you another passage of the Bible that refers to the passage that you're reading about now. And as we go through Hebrews, I would encourage you, this is a really amazing resource that you can look at and read some of these original stories. Because when you read the original story, it adds so much more to the context and the meaning of what we're reading in Hebrews. 
It's kind of like if your dad had a recliner growing up and you just knew it as dad's recliner. Um, but then you had an uncle that came over and told you the story of how that recliner got to be in your house. And he told you that that burn that's on the cushion is actually from the time when your dad set off fireworks in the living room. And the chair actually came from your grandfather who used to read stories to your dad. And that's why your dad took it, because it reminds him of him. Suddenly that chair, because you know the story behind it, has so much more meaning and context. So as we read through this chapter in Hebrews, that's what I want to try to do, is fill in some of the history and the context behind what we're reading about. Because the whole chapter here in 9 is really a comparison between old and new, and contrasting this old system versus a new system. But if we're going to appreciate what's so much better about the new system, about the sacrifice that Jesus is, we have to appreciate the old as well, too. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And even in this first verse, we see a reference back to something before this first covenant. And I know Joe has talked about covenants, Chris has talked about covenants, but I want to talk about covenants as well too because the idea of a covenant is really a unique way in which we understand our relationship with God. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've probably heard that we have a relationship with God. And there's different aspects to that relationship of how we relate to him. We relate to God as a father, um, as a friend, as a teacher, but when we talk about covenants, we get this idea of almost more of a partnership with God. And it's all throughout the Bible. In the very beginning in Genesis, we see God creates mankind in a good world to partner with him in bringing out even more good in the world. And we see in Genesis as well a problem emerge because we are not faithful partners with God. And so instead of cultivating what we were supposed to be partnering with him and bringing good about, we ended up corrupting the world with sin. And so as you read through the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible, you see God making covenants with specific people and persons in order to try to repair that relationship, that partnership. How often do we think of ourselves that way, though, in partnership with God? But that's what this references to in verse 1. It's to a specific partnership, one that God made with Moses. And when he made this covenant with Moses and the people of Israel... He set out a specific way in which the people of Israel could partner with him and a specific way in which they could come to him and worship him. And that way was by building a temple or a tent or a tabernacle. And we see that in verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And 
this idea of tabernacle isn't new either. Um, for the people in Moses' time, this was a tent that they carried with them as they traveled through the desert. But it was so much more than a tent. It was God's dwelling place. This was God's house where he would dwell amongst his people. And we see the same idea in Genesis as well, too. When God came to earth and walked the garden with Adam and Eve. And when you see that thread kind of throughout scripture, it's amazing to follow it. This idea of God coming to earth to be with us. And it brings so much more meaning when we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It reveals this aspect of God's character that he's constantly pursuing us and coming to us and providing a way that we can come to him. But the author of Hebrews continues on, and he talks about not just what this tabernacle is, but also what's in the tabernacle, and he kind of takes you on this virtual tour. And I don't know if you uh, are aware, but in 2021, I was given the prestigious award of most likely to be playing D&D. Uh, only one person got that award, and that was me at Epiphany. Um, and so what the author is doing here is very familiar to me, because if you don't know anything about D&D, it's a game that mostly takes place in your imagination. And you require somebody to kind of be the rules lawyer and make sure that everybody's playing by the rules, but they also have to describe what's going on. And what the author is doing here is doing that exact same thing. He's giving you a virtual tour of the tabernacle, of what you would see if you were to go into the tabernacle. And this is what he says. In verse 2, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which were a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So as you walk in, this is what you would see. And each of these objects in this room has so much more detail if you look up those cross-references. If you go back to the original story, you'll see that God lays out all of these details of how these things are made. So my description is going to be a really brief description, but if you want to go back and read it yourself, I highly recommend it. But as you walk in, this is what you would see. On the left, inside this tent that was covered with multiple layers, so I imagine there probably wasn't much light coming in, would be your sole source of light. And the light would be this lampstand made out of pure gold with these branches in the shape of a tree. And in each of those branches would be this cup that would hold oil. It wouldn't hold candles at that time. It would be a cup holding oil that was lit. And each of those cups was probably shaped in the fashion of like a budding um, uh, tree flower. Um, and that entire lampstand was made out of pure gold. And that was your light. And then on the other side of the room, on the right side, there would be a table. And that table was made out of a specific type of wood and covered in gold. And on that table 
were more golden dishes that held incense and golden cups and a golden pitcher for wine. And on that table as well, too, would be 12 loaves of freshly baked bread. And those loaves were meant to represent the nations of Israel. Behind that, at the back of the room, there was an altar. And the altar was there in front of that curtain that led into that second place, the most holy of places or the holy of holies. And the purpose of that altar was to burn incense that would go into, past the curtain, that second area, so that when the priest went into the most holy of holies, it would obscure God's glory as he met with the priest there and so that the priest would not die. And then he takes us further in, past that dividing curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. And in that second section was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there were three objects. This golden jar that had the manna in it, Aaron's staff, and the Ten Commandments, or the the tablets of the commandments. And each of those objects have a story that's associated with them as well, too. And if you go back and read them, you'll read the story about how God provided manna for Israel in the desert. And you'll read the story about how the nation of Israel rebelled against God and his leaders, and God destroyed a section of them and established Aaron and his family as the priests to lead Israel. And you'll also read about how Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments and then returned down and saw Israel worshiping a golden calf and he smashed them. So the tablets that were in there were actually a recreation. All of these objects were meant to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to his covenant with them, that covenant that he made with Moses, how he provided for them when they were in the desert, how he provided leadership for them by picking who it was that was going to be their spiritual leader, and also by providing the Ten Commandments so they knew how to live the right way, how to walk with God. And yet, at the same time, all of those things that were in the Most Holy of Holies would have reminded Israel of how they had failed in that partnership, in that covenant. Because the reason God provided them manna was because they were complaining in the desert that God was leaving them to starve. And the reason why God had to provide a staff with buds on it was to show that the authority was with Aaron as the high priest after they had rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And the Ten Commandments, like I said, were a reminder for Israel of how they had worshipped another god. They had worshipped a false idol instead of the living God. And so you see, all of these objects with a history and a story behind them, and the Jewish readers would have remembered all of that as he was describing this to them. But then he goes further and he describes the process of what would happen when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It would only happen once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is this. 
the priest would have to wash himself ceremonially, put on priestly garments, and he would have to bring a bull and two goats into outside of the tabernacle. And he would have to sacrifice that first bull. And the reason why he sacrificed the bull was for his own sin. And he would have to take that blood from the bull and take it into the holy place and then into the most holy place after he had lit the incense and sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And there was a specific place on the Ark of the Covenant that was covered by the cherubim with their outstretched wings, and that was called the mercy seat. And that place was the place where God would meet with the high priest as he brought that blood as a sacrifice, first for himself, and then he would have to go all the way out and they would cast lots to decide which goat would be sacrificed. And they'd sacrifice that goat, and the priest would have to go back in and then sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat as well, too, for the sins of Israel. And after that, and this was so cool as I was reading through it, I had forgotten about this, this part of it. After that, they would come out to that second goat, and the high priest would lay his hand on that goat, and he would confess the sins of the people as well too. And then that goat would be sent out from the camp. And it was representative of the sin of the people being put on that goat. I heard you say scapegoat. That's where we get the word scapegoat. And the goat would be sent out into the wilderness. And when you understand that story, doesn't it make it more significant when you hear something like this? When John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as a scapegoat for us. So the author tells his readers about the objects, and what would they would do with that process. But why does he do this? Like I said in the beginning, it's a comparison between the old and the new. And he says this about the old system. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly in the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." What the author is saying is that that old system, that whole meticulous system that they had to do every year over and over again, was just a temporary measure. It's kind of like if you've ever paid the minimum balance on a credit card. You can pay that, and it keeps the debt collector from coming to your door. But guess what? Every month, you're going to have to keep paying that payment and keep paying that payment and keep paying that payment until the balance is paid. 
And what the author is saying about this old system is that it was never going to be enough. You're always going to have to keep making those payments over and over and over again until God made a new covenant, until Jesus came. And this is what he says about the new covenant. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heavens itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. That old system wasn't meant as a final solution. And there's a lot in that new section, but it boils down essentially to this, that Jesus is so much better than that old system. Under that old system, the high priest was a sinful man who had to make sacrifices for his own sin before he could even make a sacrifice for the other people. But Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself because he was the perfect sacrifice without sin. And Jesus didn't need a tabernacle or a temple. He was able to enter into the presence of God. He was able to offer his own blood, which was the perfect payment for our sin. It wasn't just the minimum payment. It erased the balance. 
paying for sin with blood is something that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. Because to us, forgiveness so often is just a decision. Somebody does something wrong and they ask my forgiveness, and I just decide, do I want to forgive them or not? But when you read in the Bible about sin, sin has a real cost. And it says in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Under that old system, every year, blood had to be shed over and over and over again until Jesus, God in flesh, shed his blood once and for all to atone or to make one again with God, you and I. And he made that covenant to bring us back into partnership with God forever. I'll end with this story. I once uh, took care of a patient uh, who I'll always remember. He was a young man in his early 20s. And I'll always remember him because he was the first patient I ever put on a treatment called ECMO. And ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is just a fancy way of saying a machine that pumps the blood outside of your body and basically operates as a heart and lungs for you. And this young man uh, had a really severe case of asthma and unfortunately still decided to smoke cigarettes. And so he came into the hospital um, with a tremendous amount of swelling, so much so that we had to put him on a breathing machine, a ventilator, just to protect his airway from closing up from the swelling. But after we had done that, we realized that even that wasn't going to save him because his lungs were so inflamed that he couldn't breathe properly even with all the support of the ventilator. And so we made the call because at that time we didn't have that service in the hospital. And a crew that was specifically trained and a doctor came to the bedside on a helicopter ride. And they came in and attached these garden pipe-sized hoses into a large vein and artery. And as they spun that machine up, you would see this young man's blood pumping through the tubing into this machine and then back into him, being oxygenated and keeping him alive until his lungs could recover. And a few months after he flew out of the hospital over to Cooper, I was able to talk to a family member and ask how he was doing. And she said he's better, he's out of the hospital, he's on his own, but he's still smoking. And I remember thinking, how tragic is it that this young man doesn't realize the gift that he was given? How many thousands of dollars, how many hours, how many people poured into him just to save his life, only for him to continue to throw it away. But then I turn that mirror on myself, and I look at my own life, and I look at us as Christians. And how tragic is it that we so often forget how precious a gift it is that we have been given? That Jesus Christ, God in flesh, made the ultimate sacrifice and came down and repaired a relationship that we were never going to be able to fix on our own. Why? Why would God do that? Why would Jesus do that for us? It's amazing when you read in the New Testament, after you read the Old Testament, passages like this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. 
or 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Joe preached last week about how the things that we see in this world and the, the things that the author talks about in this chapter are shadows of the things to come, shadows of heaven reality. And I think when I hear that of the show Stranger Things, which is a show about these kids who live in a town and they realize that their town is connected to this other world, the upside down. And the upside down is a reflection of their world, but it's this dark reflection. And it's uh, a cold um, reflection of their world. It's messed up on that side. But the reality is, is that you and I and the world that we live in we're living in the upside down now. Yeah. And this isn't the way that God intended the world to be or for you and I to be. And when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, heaven broke into this upside down world and began the process of restoring this earth. And because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can be now found worthy again to partner with God what a precious gift that is. What will you do with that gift in 2021? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the unmeasurable gift that your son is. And I pray that as we follow you, as we walk with you in 2021, that we would walk closer and we would know how precious a gift it is to be able to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.